I'm actually just for the location section. I'm just going to sing that Monty Python song. Uh, the wait, no, I'm thinking of Tom Lehrer. What are you? What's the Monty Python one? Remember that you're standing. On oh a yeah, that's evolving. Ah uh, yeah, evolving I was thinking the uh, I was, had the periodic table one in my head earlier. The elements, Tom Lehrer. Oh yeah, uh, antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, rhenium, etc. Yeah, I've never actually even tried to learn all the lyrics to that one. More of a poisoning pigeons in the park girl myself. <laughs> With a bit of masochism tango at the weekends. So, um... <laughs> We've not spoken for weeks and I don't want to talk about anything that's happened in those weeks. Um, yeah, so same. let's talk about something else. Oh, wait, I went to see Weird Al. That wasn't bad. Oh, yeah. How did, how did that guy tell me about that? That was super fun. The tour he's doing is one where he... Um, it's like not all the big props and costumes and stuff up on screens. It's like him playing a bunch of his deeper cuts that aren't really covers. Oh, okay. So it was fun. I'm glad I had read that that's what it was before I went, because otherwise mm. like, I can see it would have been disappointing. Uh, but it did say that on the website. But I was a bit dreading it because I knew that it was all this deeper cut stuff and it was supposed to be in the smaller venues, but it was at O2 Academy in Birmingham, which I'd never been to before. So I assumed that the venue was quite big, like a kind of arena size. Yeah. Like just based on the fact it was O2 Academy and I had standing tickets and the way the numbers looked on the standing tickets, it was like there were like separate standing blocks. And then I got there and I found out actually it's a much smaller venue than I thought it was. And there were seats out, like the standing tickets were like seats out in the standing area with just no assigned seating whatsoever. Oh, okay. And because we'd gotten the queue early enough, I could get seats on the end which so I could leave and get a drink or like oh, go yeah, to the no, loo whenever I wanted. Important. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. yes, Weird Al gig, very fun. I Everyone went to a Birmingham. I went to a hor- I ended up in a horrible little nightclub. Oh, it was like literally next to the hotel, and we were kind of like, "Oh, let's get one more drink." That place looks kind of fun, and it looked like like a German beer bar. And then we had to pay to get in, which considering okay, so it was Valentine's Day, but it was also mm. like it's a Tuesday night. Yeah, but and by that point bar, we got not, not like a club. <laughs> Well, it turned out it was more of a club. Okay. There was a dance floor and like little private booths you could hire for, I'm assuming, silly amounts of money. And the vibe, we were like stood there at the bar and I'm not that old. I'm only 30. We were by far the oldest people in there. In a Belgian beer place? That's interesting. Oh, no, it was like a German themed Even pub. so? Yeah. Like right? all the girls behind the bar and like the kind of lederhosen-y, milkmaid-y nonsense. Cute. Yeah. And the, vi- the vibe was very school disco. Ha. Like <laughs> one of the quietest f- spots we found to stand was kind of overlooking the dance floor a little bit. And you could see like little gangs of girls and little gangs of guys kind of almost trying to drift. It oh. was adorable. <laughs> but I have never felt so fucking ancient. Oh, that's lovely and terrible. Anyway, then I got chips. Good. I like chips. Which was a successful end to the evening. Where did you tell me was the best place that was doing this kind of branching narrative stuff? I remember you saying, is it Dragon Age and that? Dragon Age, like there's a whole thing of your choices matter and there's a limit to how much they do because they're making sequels to these games and they kind of have to create a bit of a default world state. But even that, they managed to do quite a lot with it. That's my personal favourite. That's not mm-hmm. to say it's the best one, but I enjoy what Dragon Age does with branching narratives. Like I said, Mass Effect, 
Not so much what you do across the three games does matter for events in the following games, but it does all come down to that final choice, which is kind of disappointing. Mm. But at the same time, it's an interesting final choice. Okay. Mm. Or I think so anyway. I know there's a lot of people that really hate the Mass Effect 3 ending. But what would a world would it be if we were all the same? Uh, go, goes to show, doesn't it? <laughs> Just goes Makes to you show. Think. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of game stuff recently. I've been very focused on the book. Is the writing going well? It's okay. Uh, this last week was kind of tough. I keep getting the horrible weeks of incredibly shit focus on the week I really need to finish writing a chapter. So mm. that's a lot Connected of... Connected or coincidence? I think it's kind of been bad luck because the chapter before this came out of me like... I, I had a couple of struggling days because I was getting back into the rhythm of writing because it was the first chapter I was writing post-Christmas and New Year's and everything. Uh, but it just came out, flew out of me like water once I got into the rhythm of it. Uh, and then this chapter was back on the... Um, struggling to write so I think it's more like life is being chaotic and therefore my brain does not want to think about the silly thing yeah for sure also like the last chapter had the really fat phobic stuff in and I'm quite good at talking about that because I bitch about it a lot this chapter had the like really bad transphobic stuff in and I was just like oh I'm not in the mood to sit and point out this like is that Chandler's mum well yeah yes parent <laughs> second mum yeah um so yeah played by a cisgender woman and only refer to with male pronouns. Mm. So yeah, that, that was that was super fun to write about. But you did it. But I did it, and okay. I think it's readable. It was quite fun to sit and record it. Although I noticed like a million mistakes in it while I was recording it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which that's so how that, that goes. That's how I'm going to do the next section of that's editing process. Is re- read reading all- aloud is always part of my proofreading process. Yeah. It's better still if you can get someone else to read it for you aloud. And if that's doesn't if that's not a person for practicality reasons, for instance, if you're writing a whole fucking book, uh, use one of the text to speech things. Yes, I will try that. One of the stupidest mistakes I made is I was writing about the show Freaks and Geeks, which has a character in it called Lindsay Weir. Mm-hmm. It's spelled W E I R. Mm-hmm. I referred to her more than once in that chapter as Alison Weir, not sure. a character from Freaks and Geeks, famous historical no- novelist. Yeah, I mean, also great, but for different career reasons. And not big in 90s sitcom. All right, it's eight o'clock. Should we, should we press on? Yeah, do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, I, I do actually. I do want to make a podcast. Let's do that. Let's do it. Hello and welcome to The Drew Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are usually reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And we've spun mildly off course to talk about a Discworld supplementary novel. Yeah, we've catapulted back in time a little bit, which is suitable. Acceptable. I think, for the subject matter. For the subject matter. We are talking about the science of Discworld. We are. Part one. Mm-hmm. Because there uh, are many. Part one of the first book. Because <laughs> yes. there are four. <laughs> we are talking about chapters one through 24 of the uh, first Science of Discworld book. Which Although, sounds scary, but they're short chapters. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be okay, guys. There's a lot of science, but we're going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, note on spoilers before we crack on. We are a spoiler light podcast, heavy spoilers for the Science of Discworld. Um, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld past Nightwatch, the part of the main canon we're currently up to, 
And of course, we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Surfing on waves of dark matter in a rapidly expanding universe. Amazing. I want to point out I don't quickly, know what a wave of dark matter is, but I like the visual. <laughs> uh, also, before we crack on, I am aware that by talking about this book, I've broken my own rule about not explaining quantum physics to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but listeners, you're still not allowed. I think if anyone's allowed, it's Pratchett and colleagues. Yeah, they're, they're allowed. They're the only ones. But mm-hmm. I did my best to not understand And you wrote this chapters. before we made up the bit. So. <laughs> I'm still very firm on the rules of cricket, though, guys. <laughs> Not a word. I don't want. I don't know what a wicket is, and I don't want to know. <laughs> All I know is it rhymes with cricket, and that just seems egregious. Uh, follow up. <laughs> yes, I, we've had emails, Francine. We've had oh, emails. Oh, good. Just a couple of emails um, from Elizabeth, who's a new listener who was listening to our Nightwatch episodes and then going back to the start. So it may be many, many moons before Elizabeth hears this. Um, I'll tell you something about moons. No, sorry, later. <laughs> Um, I've been learning. <laughs> Elizabeth says, read the mountain names. And I think Elizabeth mentioned that uh, they were somewhere around equal rights. So I do not remember the context for this. Oh, shit. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no. Um, there's a range in the US called Trois Tetons oh. uh, that was named by French tappers, but trappers before America was a thing, which means three tits. I've, I have a vague memory of talking about how many people named mountains after tits. And I assume that made it into the podcast, not just our coffee then. <laughs> I don't know, but either way, uh, apparently this brings Elizabeth joy and it brings me joy too. So joy all round. Uh, Elizabeth did also say something about scones, but she was wrong. So we'll ignore that. Um, she said, what? Bus- oh, bu- oh, my yeah. way was right according to Elizabeth, is it? Uh, butter, then jam, then cream, which is just oh. wrong on like 8 million levels. So no, Do you not, not put butter on? No, because the, the cream first and that kind of acts like oh, the butter. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Jam. No, we've been through this at length, haven't yeah, we? We don't with, need to do this practicals. again. <laughs> I did a demonstration, Francine. You did. And, We're um, going to have to do an in-person episode again one day for food reasons. Yes, we'll do it. Basically, Joanna, I'm saying I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I've got really back into making bread a lot recently at the moment, so we'll do a bread-related episode. I'll okay. make focaccia. Okay. Shall I just have a dinner party? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll <laughs> or maybe bring a microphone. <laughs> Uh, we also got an email from Steve, uh, who, um, in response to us talking about Nightwatch and especially the whole Vimes made veterinary thing. Says regular res- regular correspondent, Steve? Regular correspondent. Uh, no, not regular correspondent, Steve. A different, different Steve. Steve. Hello, other Steve. Hello, other Steve. Um, uh, he was talking about how veterinary made Vimes because of how he was in the start of Guards, Guards, compared to later books. But although Vetinari interacted with Vimes more after that, he would have known about him beforehand because it's Vetinari. So it wasn't just his influence. It was the other person Vimes met, Sybil. Although Vimes was literally in the gutter when we met him, that seemed to be uh, because he lacked hope in being able to change things, but was at his core still a good man. He just hated the world for grinding down people who weren't in power and didn't have the self-belief to do anything about it. But then he meets Sybil, who helps build him up, show him love and compassion, and is his rock, gives him the confidence to try to make a difference, put himself out there and do what he believes is the right thing to do, and that increases over time. So I agree that Vesinari had a huge influence on Vimes and used him well, but he didn't make Vimes. Vimes was almost Vimes, but Sybil gave him a position to really be Vimes. And I didn't really think to talk about Sybil. In fact, there are 8 million things I realised I could have said better after we finished recording Nightwatch. But I think we talked is... briefly about Sybil, but not in enough depth. And I think that was beautifully put, so I don't regret not saying it, because that is a really well-written addition. Yes, 
So thank you very much, Steve, you, Steve, for pulling over into a lay-by while driving to write that because ADHD brain meant he would have forgotten otherwise. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I tried to start like uh, listening to some of the audiobook stuff on my commute because I was like running out of time to do the reading. Mm-hmm. And um, that's no nonsense because I can't pull in on a lay-by because I need to go to work and mm-hmm. uh, I will just forget everything. Yeah, understand that problem. So, Francine... So- Would you like to introduce us to the science of Discworld? I would. Actually, sorry, let me have a supporter. I've got such dry... I've had so much coffee today, I've got really dry mouth now. Same. I did not sleep. So, the science of Discworld. The first of four books by Terry Pratchett, Ian Stewart, and Jack Cohen. Each kind of alternates round world science with Discworld story. This one was published in 1999, which is the same year as The Fifth Elephant. Uh, Later that year, during a ceremony at which Pratchett was awarded an honorary degree by the University of Warwick, he would make Cohen and Stewart honorary wizards of the Unseen University. Rather upstaging himself, I feel. Uh, (laughs) We know a lot about Pratchett already, so let's talk briefly about Jack Cohen and Ian Stewart. Jack Cohen, who sadly died in 2019, was a zoologist and embryologist, embryologist, yeah, whose former pupils include Nobel Prize winners. Oh. Ooh. Ian Stewart is a mathematician who was famous for his contributions to catastrophe theory. Mm-hmm. Um, Cohen and Stewart knew each other well, um, had in fact written books together years before this particular project. Uh, in fact, the concept of lies to children, as presented in Science of Discworld, first appeared in their book, The Collapse of Chaos, although it gained popularity um, in, for a wider audience in the Discworld collaboration. In fact, there's a whole Wikipedia page just on the concept lies to children like based on this. So I'll link to that. Pratchett met Cohen at a sci-fi convention when Cohen spilled a pint of beer over Pratchett's lap. Um, They met again and formed a friendship at a later convention in The Hague, which is an event alluded to in the science of Discworld. Some years ago, at a science fiction convention held in The Hague, four writers who made lots of money from their books sat in front of an audience of mostly impecunious fans. I had to look up that word. Uh, It means not rich. Um, (laughs) To explain how they'd made huge income from their books, as if any of them really knew. Each of them said that money isn't important, and the fans became quite rude at this perfectly accurate statement. It was necessary to point out that money is like air or love, unimportant if you've got enough of it, but desperately important if you haven't. Um, So it turns out one of those four writers was Cherry Pratchett, Mm -hmm. and the heckler who stopped him in his tracks and therefore earned his respect was Jack Cohen. Um, I'll link an interview with The Guardian that tells the full story. It's quite funny. Someone throws a tomato at Pratchett. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And Cohen tells him to shut up. So, <laughs> and, and that's how you made friends with him, apparently. Uh, in the same interview, Cohen told The Guardian about the struggles he had getting the first Science of the Discworld book published. He says, I spent two and a half years going around editors. I must have had 80 lunches and dinners. And they all said, don't be stupid. At last, Ebury took it. The editor there was made to understand that if it sold less than 10,000 copies, he'd lose his job. It sold more than 25,000. It would be a miracle. It sold more than 200,000 copies in the first year. Um, Oh, and because we've been talking about covers and that quite a lot recently, I was like, the cover of the book was designed by Paul Kidby. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a parody of the 1768 painting, An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump by Joseph Wright of Derby, which is uh, a rather beautiful painting. I'll uh, link to a 
image of it and apparently was um, fairly groundbreaking at the time because it it showed a scientific experiment in the same kind of reverent holy light that was usually used for um, like scenes of uh, biblical or other religious stories. Oh, right. Um, so that's great. I'm also going to link uh, a couple more interview, written interviews and a lovely hour-long YouTube video showing a presentation given by all three of the authors. Oh, amazing. So I had a lot of fun doing the around the subject reading. <laughs> Excellent. So do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, so <laughs> like for context, this is this is a fiction story playing out alternating with chapters on real science based in our galaxy. So I have just summarized what's happening in the fictional chapters. I'm not going to try and summarize all of the science mm-hmm. because um there's quite a lot of science. Yeah, there is. But that would luckily, be a really silly thing to try and do in a page. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, the plot, on the other hand, quite simple. Hmm. So, in this first section, chapter 1 to 24, uh, Ponder has taken over the university squash court in an attempt to split the Thaum and heat the university. The burst is helping, but an explosion might be imminent. Things are heating up and there's magic in the air. Too much magic. The globes are discharging and Ponder's on the verge of panic. But Hex has an idea, using the excess to generate a magicless void, the Round World Project. The Dean gets hands-on in the empty expanse and a universe begins. Hex expands into once and future computing and the universe is under glass. It's a bit too spherical and full of exploding furnaces, but somewhere underneath it all, intelligence might be lurking. The project grows and rocks are being thrown. It looks like the universe has built-in balls. Stars are exploding and Ponder's reigning world freezes, but the wizards start up a sun. A volunteer is needed to explore the project up close. Rincewind unwillingly volunteers and dons a suit of spells to visit the round world. It's lifeless, but incredibly damp. Rincewind walks out of the ocean as time moves rapidly for the round planet, but there's no tides until a moon's moved into place. Ponder's in the dark, trying to comprehend the speed of light. Rincewind's got his sandwiches, but there's still no signs of life, although there is a beautiful blue sea. Deep in the rock pools, there's life forms blobbing along. With a bit of time, they might approve... (laughs) You knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Why do you think I put that in there? <laughs> On the bottom of the beautiful, the beautiful turquoise sea. <laughs> Fucking blue-green algae. Uh, helicopter and loincloth watch. Mm. Uh, Dean's drawers get the loincloth on her. Um, of course. While it's rather warm in the university. Honestly, like everything in this book could be a helicopter. There's just a lot of spinning. A lot of spinning. I went with the centrifugal forces in the Earth's core that uh, contribute to the magnetism of the okay. North and South Pole. Yeah, that's good. I have um, a recommendation of a video for that, by the way, if like me, sometimes benefit from visuals. C- weirdly enough, CGP Grey's video on runway numbers at airports has a really in-depth explanation of the Earth's magnetism. Oh, I remember that video. I will uh, link to that if I remember. Excellent. Uh, other things we're keeping track of, uh, the librarian gets explained briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have death here in reference to Mort and talking about oh, the character, yeah. so I'll call that death turning up. Yes. For the sake of consistency. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we set the scene with weather. That's something we sometimes look at. Oh, we do. Uh, in the first chapter, we're talking about how cold it is, and in fact, that is the catalyst. Yes. Oh, but that's also a scientific thing. 
You know what I mean, everyone. Thank you for understanding. Uh, <laughs> Listeners, please forgive our overlapping of scientific and narrative terms. We just only know so many words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of them are difficult, like corrugated. <laughs> Marmalade. <laughs> uh, and you've got an irrelevant elephant? I do. It's lifted straight from the book. Uh, neutron stars are incredibly dense, about 40 trillion pounds per square inch. 20 million elephants in a nutshell. Marvellous. Yeah. Don't do that to elephants in real life, obviously. If anyone was going to try it, that's quite cruel and probably fatal to you before it is to them anyway. I thought you were going to have a different (laughs) elephant fact because there was another one at the end of this section. Oh, which one? Elephants get stressed out if they spot. If they find the bones, yes. Yeah, Yeah, no, you're quite right. Yeah, I also did have that one highlighted and I went back to the other one. Yeah, (laughs) sorry, quotes, yeah. (laughs) Do you want to go first? I don't know which one's first. Yes. I'm glad that's sorted out then, said the senior wrangler briskly. We're here because we're here. And since we're here, we might as well be warm. Very practical philosophy, I think. That is uh, the senior wrangler's great skill. Mm -hmm. I do agree. We Uh, should be warm. He always thinks everything has to mean something, said Ridcully, who generally took the view that trying to find any deep meaning to events was like trying to find reflections in a mirror. You always succeeded, but you didn't learn anything new. Big Red Cully fans here on this podcast. Might be a slight personal attack on us, constantly trying to find meaning in things, but I think sometimes we manage to find something new, so it's fine. And often we fail, in fact, so that's fine. (laughs) I can't believe Red Cully just called out our entire fucking podcast like this. We might as well just stop now. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. He'd never work out how to listen to it anyway. Ah, good point. Characters, then? Uh, Yeah. We've got, we got a few friends. We've got Ponda. Oh, Ponda. Panicky Poor Ponda. Ponda. He gets very sad uh, when he's figuring out the rules for this universe he's made. There are no turtles. Rule number five, there are no turtles anywhere. Mm. Rule number six, it's so depressing. I agree. Yeah. Although, of course, that is a direct translation of Isaac Newton's... Uh, <laughs> is it? Translation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember Isaac Newton writing a lot about turtles. No, no. Or well, depression. That's only because back in the day it was impossible to make large quantities of cl- colonium without... Um, uh, fuck, I couldn't think of a, a scientific equipment that wasn't a Bunsen burner and that might have existed. No, I can't have... Fuck. Oh, Joanna, I used to know a lot more science history than this. <laughs> I used to know some science history, but I've learned so many things for this podcast that apparently nothing is retained in my brain. Well, I read... Bill Bryson's uh, Brief History of Nearly Everything or whatever it's called, uh, Short History of Nearly Everything. And I must have read it four or five times. And it really is appalling how little I've retained. I've just got little tidbits, you know. I, I struggle with things. the idea that every scientist is a little bit wrong in the head. I struggle a bit with like books like this and like the Bill Bryson one in it's lots of different kinds of information mm. at once. And mm. I'm if I get into something sciencey, then I will very much directly obsess over a very specific topic until mm. I've burned it all into my brain. Yeah. So hence why I understand eyesight and deep sea fish and the molecular structure of top chocolate, but I haven't deeply, deeply picked, got my head around any of the science in this book yet. Oh, I have a podcast episode on bioluminescence and biofluorescence to send you. Remind me if I. Oh, yay, my favourite. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, so that was that was Ponder. Uh, Bursa, bless Bursa. I think he did pretty well for a minute there. Hey. And I see he's been reading, which is ominous. 
I very much enjoy the line, he picked up the first page and made a paper hat out of it before beginning to read. Mm -hmm. Because there's sort of a, it's the shape of the sentence is doing someone doing something completely normal. He made a cup of tea before he sat down to read. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sat down and adjusted his paperwork before, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to start making paper hats out of something before I begin reading. Yes, I think so. We should probably start keeping a blank page around just for that, though, otherwise we'll miss context. Yeah, I shouldn't start tearing pages out of my books for the sake of hats. <laughs> Well, I read most of mine on the iPad now, so it'd be difficult for me. Just balance the iPad on your head, but that would make reading challenging. Mm. We'll come back to this. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. We'll circle back. Red Cully. Red Cully. Oh, Big what fan. a charmer. As always, lovely to see him again. A little bit of bonus Red Cully in this book. I enjoy the amount of Red Cully in this book. I did notice um, Ponder's trying to explain what might happen vis-a-vis mm. -vis explosions and such. And Red Cully... Did, does the uh, it's because of quantum and there's some masses in some universe next door where it did go wrong and the poor devils got blown up mm. and I like that out of everything Ponder has ever explained to Ridcully the trousers of time have stuck yes that's quite right isn't it yeah because he had to do that at length once that was in I think it was in Lords and Ladies because he's dealing with um, Granny Weatherwax at the same time and he's trying to explain the trousers of time to her oh yeah that sounds right um hmm yeah, Rick Cully has a couple of nice uh, perspicacious moments. Is that how you pronounce that word? I'm having yeah. a day of it. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, oh, sorry, the, you definitely started this off before we did the ceremony, the yeah. whole. Now, when you say it's not going to blow us up, you're clearly lying. So can we try again? Uh, <laughs> I do like Ray Cully having like shrewd moments because mm -hmm. Ponder just doesn't face shrewdness from most of the faculty ever. Mm -hmm. He's got this whole thing built based on, well, it's awfully chilly though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Ridcully in his way is a perfectly evolved beast. He uses his mental energy on exactly the points he needs to or the points that will annoy Ponder the most, uh, which is like emotional nourishment, I suppose. And... <laughs> And yeah, the rest of it, it just lets bounce off him until until needed. I like it. I wish we I could feel be like that. Yeah, we should all be a bit more red colour, shouldn't we? Mm. Yeah, without the hunting probably, otherwise we'll, everything will be extinct within days. Yeah. I heard that they're trying to get dodos back from the dead, the same people who are doing the Tasmanian devils and the mammoths. Oh, cool. Mm. I mean, Tasmanian tigers, Tasmanian devils yeah. still exist, don't they? Yeah. Thylacines, whatever though. Yeah. Anyway, well, sorry. Right. Fuck. Uh, Hex. It's got nothing to do with Rick Kelly, really. Uh, Hex. Yeah. This is like the most we've ever heard from Hex in a short time, yeah. right? Yeah. We get like Hex's he, he's actual internal monologue. It's its own character. Sorry. Well, he uh, does get referred Rick, to Rick as Kelly he... keeps calling him as that good man or whatever. But Hex, when thinking of itself thinks of it doesn't he it yeah fuck. <laughs> now that is a pronoun i'm struggling with <laughs> it is it is a challenging yeah, pronoun seems sometimes disrespectful. um oh there was one of the rare science bits i didn't understand right away was the reference to um oh, what are the rare bits eh? not much of it i understood immediately we've <laughs> talked about my quantum issues francine no bullshit there's loads of this stuff i know you already know but carry on <laughs> Um, uh, Hex has multiple logic uh, constructions. 
So as well as being able to cope with and or and and or statements, you also can do maybe, perhaps, suppose and why. <laughs> so that's why all your games take so long to build. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to build new logic states from scratch. Look, I don't like black and white thinking. <laughs> why have a Boolean when you can have a large smudge a of grey area? <laughs> uh, the Dean is a dick and I love it. He's such a twat. I love him. He is the most like he's he's my favourite twatty character that I know in person. I would have to hit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the moment where uh, the whole if then my name's not Ridcully, and Dean is repeatedly doing the Charlie Grinder Gertrude, mm-hmm. because as much as I would hit the Dean, I would also drag that bit out that long, if not much, much longer. Yeah. Do you know what? Because there was the chapter in between. I was so confused the first time I read that page. I was like, what the fuck is he on about? I had to do it as well. I, I had to go back and check back it. And see, what did, oh, girl, my name's a bloody hell. <laughs> ha ha, I guess. <laughs> the joy was slightly taken out of it by the fact I'd forgotten and I knew that was my fault. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, he's always a delight, I think, in that very, very special way of his. Um, the the others as well, I think, is the dynamic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the you know the senior wrangler being the a, a bit of a straight man. That yeah, the lecturer recent rooms. They've all got elements named after each other that they're sad when they disappear. The um, oh oh, I noted down. Um, we've occasionally had a look at the character, the um, job titles, haven't we? Oh, yeah. um, I noticed the Professor of Eldritch Lace Making, which I thought you might like. I did spot that one. <laughs> okay, I considered good. that as a. Uh... <laughs> That's a new drag name. <laughs> um, if you ever learn how to make lace, I think Lovecraftian monsters as a motif should be definitely in there. I have been resisting the urge to learn how to tat lace by hand because it looks really satisfying, but also like I don't need to learn another fucking hobby. Yeah, no. I mean, at least it's kind of connected to some of your other hobbies, so... It would be so cool to me. Right, no. No, sorry. I'm so easily derailed today. Mm-hmm. What have we done so far? Tasmanian Devils, Unity, Lace. Cool. Uh, <laughs> <Sold>. Story prompt. <laughs> Sold uh, for hours of your life. <laughs> many, many hours. Uh, um, yes, we're not spending a ton of time on characters today because there's so much fun, sciencey stuff to talk about. But we also have Rincewind. It's nice to do. see Rincewind again. Rincewind back. And this would have been like right after the last continent. Mm. So mm-hmm. he's just come back from 4X. Yes. And now he gets the job of cruel and unusual geography, having just spent many weeks in the place that ate the last uh, <laughs> geography professor. Yeah. Uh, cruel and egregious geography. Oh, that's right. Quite right. Yeah. <laughs> egregious geography. <laughs> that is just it's just too much for goodness sake <laughs> calm it down <laughs> definitely Maybe. early earth vibes there yep oh, oh turquoise is it oh what a blue sea oh, raining for a million years for god's sake oh Tone another down. another volcano are you we serious we get it we get it simmer down mate come on <laughs> uh yeah anyway rents when poor sod as usual being dragged into something i quite like his vr experience that's an interesting bit of magic i'm finding it hard to visualize yeah because it is very much vr but i am picturing it like it's like the material 
Well, the thing is, because we had him doing not quite VR, but uh, in interesting times, he had oh, his yeah. kind of suit where he was controlling stuff, mm-hmm. and that was based on a video game. So I do feel like this has moved on slightly from that, but not by much. Yeah. Well, it's made by the modern wizards, of course, rather than the ancient uh, temple builders, tomb builders. Very much so. Like, so. I guess uh, magic has moved on. Or something. <laughs> Certainly, it's uh, useful for the plot. Yes. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure I could cope with eating sandwiches in virtual reality. Oh, yeah. This is, by the way, the second time that Rincewind has eaten a sandwich at the dawn of time of a world. <laughs> Although at least this time life came from elsewhere, probably. If I had a quid for every time Rincewind had eaten a sandwich at the dawn of time, you know. We could afford a sandwich. Maybe. Not anymore. Not in this, but no, not in this no. economy. God damn it. <sighs> I could make a sandwich. All right. Out of a primordial ooze. <laughs> Ooh. With lettuce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For crunch. <laughs> and then with locations uh, fucking everywhere. Ever. Uh-huh. In the history yeah. of everywhere. Because at once it was possibly all in one spot. Brackets, my head hurts, listeners, is what this one bullet point says. I think Joanna got a little fed up halfway through this episode plan. Look, there's a slight possibility that uh, I had a mild existential crisis reading about the formation of the universe. Uh, I had one of those with the uh, the theory of time not really existing, although I like that theory. Yeah, no, I think my uh, note I put down in my notebook for that one was just, oh, head fuck. Mm. But like because... in, a, in an okay way. Yeah, like I, I'm kind of okay with time not really being a thing. Yeah, I like that. It's quite close to immortality. Yeah, like if you think about it, if there's no such thing as linear time, then technically you've always been alive. Yeah, always been alive. Everyone you miss is still spending time with you somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I like it anyway. It's a comforting thought to give yourself a crisis with. <laughs> it's a nice flavour of existential crisis. <laughs> What a lovely crisis. <laughs> Not one of the spicy ones. <laughs> right, should we talk about some science? Yes. So, little bits we liked. We have some of those, that's for sure. Do you want to start us off? Yeah. As above, so below. Mm-hmm. Uh, Red Cully says while talking about why the, the universe they've created appears to be aping no offence, librarian. Uh, the much more sensible and well-constructed Discworldian one. Mm-hmm. And Rid Cully says, we're forgetting our kindergarten magic, can't we? It's not even magic. It's a basic rule of everything. The project can't help being affected by this world. Piles of sand try to look like mountains. Men try to act like gods. Little things so often appear to look like big things made smaller. Uh, goes on a... Um, and then, so as above, so below is like a, obviously a well-established um, thought experiment series, mm-hmm. whatever thing on Round World. And I've always quite liked it—the idea that, um, oh, you know, those wonderful vis- visuals you get of uh, neurons, and you zoom out and out and out and out, and then all the galaxies make the same patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the spiral of a fern making these astronomical kind of mirror kind of stuff. I love it. Love all of that stuff. Um, so I looked it up, and as above, so below. It's a popular modern paraphrase of the second verse of the Emerald Tablet, uh, which is a compact and cryptic hermetic text, first attested in an Arabic source dating to the late 8th or early 9th century. That which is above is like to that which is below, and that which is below is like to that which is above. 
And I like it, A, because I love the concept, and B, because what a wonderful shortening of that phrase, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful bit of sub-editing, if ever I saw it. <laughs> that is perfect. Succinct. <laughs> yes, indeed. Speaking of things that are small... Yeah, good segue, well done. Langton's aunt. <laughs> Langton's aunt. This was a bit I spotted in the book and was immediately like, well, I want to know all about that and look at pictures of it, and that sounds mm. cool. It's chapter 12, Where the Rules Come From, and uh, Langton's aunt is uh, the small star of a computer program. The ant wanders around on an infinite square grid. Every time it comes to a square, the square changes colour from black to white or white to black. If it mm-hmm. lands on a white square, then it turns right, but if it lands on a black square, then it turns left. Uh, and this is in the book, it's in relation to the theory of everything. Um, and it's quite interesting. Uh, as the book explains, it starts with simplicity. So for the first uh, few hundred moves, it creates very simple, symmetrical-ish patterns. Mm-hmm. And then it's total chaos with no discernible pattern up till about the 10,000 mark where it cre- starts creating a strictly patterned diagonal highway. Oh, and then stays there. Oh. Yeah. Um, and we'll continue that highway infinitely if you're using an actual infinite square. So I will link to a couple of things in the show notes. I found a website that basically allows you to run Langton's Ant with all sorts of different parameters. So you can run it starting going in any direction you want. So it can start going north, south, east, or west. Um, place it anywhere on the grid. You can do, obviously, it can't do an infinite grid, but it can do any size grid you want. So you can see how far you can make it go. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so that, which that in itself is quite an interesting thing. Um, the ant's trajectory is always unbounded, regardless of the initial configuration. That's a quote straight from the Wikipedia page, but I was looking for more explanation of that. It's called the Cohen-Kong theorem. And the explanation I found is actually from Ian Stewart. Hey. There's a Wayback Machine link of um, an article, but I'll link to it in the show notes. And the explanation is, any bounded trajectory must eventually repeat the same pattern, position and heading. And by reversibility, such a trajectory must be periodic, repeating the same motions indefinitely. Um, with the ant, and there is a explanation, a, a proper theorem type explanation, which if I read out on the podcast, I don't think will be particularly helpful for people. Yeah, let's try and reserve some listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it effectively proved that the ant has absolutely no bounded proje- trajectory. So running the initial configuration of Langton's ant, that horizontal uh, diagonal highway that it's created will mm-hmm. go on indefinitely. Mm. It will not hit a point where, because of the pattern, it stops and then can only work around the existing number of squares. Cool. Um, Does this have any real-life practical applications? So um, you can use it to calculate the trajectory of an instance of Langton's ant can be used to calculate a Boolean circuit. Oh, thank goodness. Yes. I won't go into a lot of depth with that because I'm. if I had spent all day on this and I very nearly did. It's true, uh, listeners. She did at one point message me like, I've been watching fucking simulations of ants for ages. I need to plan the episode. <laughs> um, the ant can simulate an arbitrary Turing machine. Ooh. Uh, which means it is possible. The ant is capable of universal computation specifically. What's also quite cool is that... There are multiple colour extensions of Langton Ants, and you can play with all of these in the thing I'll link to. glorious Technicolor. <laughs> Very much so, but so you can do different things where it has a cyclical thing, so it's not just black and white, but there's four colours, and it goes through them in a certain order. So, um, like, LLL, they're 
described through these uh, like acronyms like LLRR. Um, so that's four colors across those four letters, but that means it goes left on certain colors, left on certain colors, right on certain colors, right on certain colors. And because that um, effectively allows for infinite repetition of that, mm-hmm. it grows perfectly symmetrically. Oh, oh, fractal kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, the ant's name seen as... So when these things are, are called the name of the ant, so like the initial, the original Langton's ant is named RL in this scheme. Okay. The ant's name seen as a cyclic list consists of consecutive pairs of identical letters. Uh, so the cyclic list implies that the last letter compare with the first one. Um, and then there's lots of much bigger, more complex versions of it where it creates hexagonal shapes. Yes. It'll there's a version that involves about eight letters where it fills in a space in a square around itself. Some of them can be trained to draw like really specific triangles. It's all really cool. cool. The only reason I actually looked it up was I wanted to look in the coding behind it for how to represent it on screen. Mm. And um so I had some fun looking at source code, which also distracted me for quite a while. So I'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. Uh but it's very interesting. And also especially the different configuration ones are just really, really satisfying to look at. Brain scratchy. Nice. Um so from something very small to something rather larger, what what's a planet, Joanna? What is a planet? <laughs> what is this thing they keep going on about in here? Well, I was interested in this because they were talking about um exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Uh so planets outside of our solar system. And they've found an awful lot of them. Yes. Um, about 70 extrasolar planets have been detected either by the Wobble Method, perfect name. Sorry, was that in this book? Yeah, that was in this book. So okay. obviously lots and lots since, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an interesting thing, actually. You and I were talking about the fact, had we spotted any science that like we know is out of date? Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably not as much as there is, because obviously oh, yeah. this book was written over 20 years ago. Yeah. So, some um, of the stuff that's made the news, so like the, the elements... Yeah, uh, the Higgs boson yeah. particle yeah, obviously yeah. has now been found. Yeah, um, in- under the sofa. Obs. Obs. Is there a Higgs boson under the sofa? Or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> Very quickly. So this ties into one of the other um, bits of science, which is is Pluto a planet? Yes. So definition defining planets is quite complicated, but for help we have the International Astronomical Union. Thank goodness. So in 2005, there was the discovery of Eris, which is a trans-Neptunian body. Uh, trans-Neptunian means it is within our solar system's orbit, but out past Neptune. Eris is notably bigger than Pluto, currently the smallest accepted planet. So there was an argument of, is Eris also a planet then? Uh-huh. Uh, which encouraged the... Pluto back as a planet now, have we? It's a dwarf planet, okay. as is Eris. Okay, okay. Um, and quite a few others, actually. Um, there's, there's a few trans-Neptunian bodies, it turns out, and they're all quite large. Hey. So this was discovered in 2005. So in 2006, the International Astronomical Union sat down to find a planet. Now, I will point out that this definition of planet is somewhat controversial, and geophysicists have had some conversations about whether this is the only way that planets should be decided. But there's only so many definitions we can go into on one podcast and i think for what the geophysicist and the astronomers argue about this that's quite fun yeah no there is some drama so according to the iau a planet orbits the sun Mm -hmm. is big enough for its own gravity to make it spherical and is gravitationally dominant within its area also known as dynamical dominance and what that means is that there are no other bodies of comparable size other than its own satellites sort of within its orbit okay 
So it's not. So it's it's now allowed for the massive moons like we've got then. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So dwarf planets are planets that meet the first two criteria, but not the third. Okay. So Pluto, Eris, these trans-Neptunian orbiting bodies, they're big enough for their own gravity to make them round and they do orbit the sun, but they're not able to achieve dynamical dominance, especially with a planet like Pluto, whose moon is almost the same size as it. Okay, okay. So it's effectively twiddling around its own own moon. Oh, like one of those lovely um, little desk toys. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so the IAU definition only covers bodies within our solar system. So they then got together and had a conversation about exoplanets outside of our solar system. Okay. And it was laid down but continue being discussed. So this is as of 2018. Okay. And these are like they get to have together, they're a big meeting. So the whole um, solar system planet discussion all happened at a big conference in Prague and was taken to a vote. It's quite a democratic process for defining these things. Hmm. So exoplanets as of 2018 are objects with True masses below the limiting mass for thermonuclear fusion of deuterium. Catchy. Currently calculated to be 13 Jupiter masses for objects of solar metallicity. I'm not following. Sorry. They Um, are big, but not so big that they can, they're celestial bodies that aren't big enough to become stars, basically. Okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. cool. Um, Because if their masses were above that limiting mass, then the thermonuclear fusion would start and they would potentially become stars. Okay, got it, got it. Um, so it's only so big a planet can be. Yeah, so exoplanets have that mass. The orbit stars, brown dwarfs, and I'll get to brown dwarfs in a sec, uh, all stellar remnants and that have a... There's a whole thing with a mass ratio that I won't explain. Okay. Because it's a very complicated equation. Yeah, no, those just aren't fun to read out loud. <laughs> anyway, they are planets no matter how they are formed because obviously okay. we've had lots of conversations in this book about the formations of, say, planets, the moon, mm-hmm. etc. The minimum mass slash size required for an extrasolar object to be considered a planet should be the same as that used in our solar system. Mm-hmm. Hence, things like Pluto and Eris not being planets but being dwarf planets. So brown dwarfs, for context, are failed stars. They're not big enough to sustain nuclear fusion of ordinary hydrogen into helium. Um, So it's a specific kind of size thing. It's between, they're bigger than gas giants like Jupiter, okay, but smaller than little stars. Okay. Because you get little stars and then you get big stars like our sun. Okay. So you also have, as well as the exoplanets that are found and part of their planetary definition is that they are orbiting a star, a brown dwarf, a stellar remnant. They are in something's orbit. They are not often part of a system. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have rogue planets, which is an interstellar object of planetary mass, not gravitationally bound. (laughs) Ragtag bunch of misfit rogue planets. (laughs) So they're big enough to be planets, but they're not bound to a star or a brown dwarf. Okay. And Ooh. quite often, it's possible that a lot of them have been ejected from planetary systems. The book talks about um, a possibility that... by wizards. <laughs> possibly flicked by wizards, possibly have a rock thrown at them by wizards, possibly the thing that might happen to Earth, which is that orbits are going to go a bit funky and something's going to do-si-do out of the solar system. Ugh. That was in the book, but it's going to happen like billions of years from now. Okay. We'll be living on a cooler planet by then. Cool. I hope. So yeah, so these rogue planets may have been ejected from planetary systems. Theoretically, some are formed in a similar way to stars are. Um, if But if they're outside of planetary systems, and they're, again, if they're a certain size, they're also classified as sub-brown dwarfs. 
Okay. If it seems like they have a starbase formation as opposed to a planet type coalescence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, that was a lot of information, but I hope you know what a planet is now. I certainly know some more about it. <laughs> Good, I'm, I'm not, not convinced sure. I could explain that to anyone else, which is always the uh, test, isn't it? But it's however, basically, however, I've now got it on record, so I can go back and listen again. <laughs> it's basically just size and gravity. All comes okay, down to okay. size and gravity, much like dating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not too fussed about size, but if, if they're not like... Dynamically dom- dynamic- dominant. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. I could see myself careening towards that phrase like you for stepping in. <laughs> Much like a planet knocked off its mm. orb- orbit in a gravitational do-si-do. It's a bit of a rogue planet, if you know what I mean. He's not dynamically dominant, but he's uh, certainly dangerous to the orbit of our habitable... Never mind. No, carry on. Let's uh... <laughs> he's certainly got a true mass below the limiting mass for the thermonuclear fusion of deuterium. Yeah, but uh, it's a bit of a fixer-upper. But <laughs> uh, Stop dating gas giants. <laughs> right. Oh, tides. So, <laughs> I like tides. I like tides. Um, I didn't know quite a lot of the, the stuff in, in this book about tides. I like the subject. I didn't know the stuff about like trees being affected by tides. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and convinces me that there might be something to the whole thing about human behaviour being in some way linked to the moon. Because if trees are, we're watery too. Um, and honestly, not much more complex than trees. No, no, certainly not. Um, I can, for instance, have never once grown a crop of apricorns. So, I've never photosynthesized. I've never housed a squirrel. <laughs> Fun fact, Jersey, where I was born, the Channel mm-hmm. Island, uh, has the third largest tidal range in the world, according to jersey.com anyway. I think that might be by nate. I'm not sure if it means by island or by nation or what, because all the other places I found listed are just like specific bays or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, it does double in size almost at low tide, can confirm. Pretty dramatic tides come in very quickly as well in weird shapes, so you don't want to be standing in the wrong place. Yes, I nearly got trapped on a beach while we were in yes, Jersey. you did, yes. But you didn't quite, so well done you. Lots of tourists do. The highest tide on Earth can be found at the Bay of Fundy, which is mentioned in the book. And in the Bay of Fundy, in one 12-hour tidal cycle, about 100 billion tonnes of water flows in and out of the bay, which is twice as much as the combined total flow of all the rivers of the world over the same period. Wow. One day. Isn't that mental? That's amazing. Yeah. I'll, I'll find some like uh, pics and videos or something. It's pretty cool. I also like this part of the book because it had some of my favourite quotes from the wizards. Um, I liked, I think we can dispose of the invisible moon theory. Interesting though it was, Dean. And also, you really believe that thing, said the Dean, pointing, with its moon-hating water and wells that go around <laughs> suns. <laughs> Our moon hating water, hey? Honestly. Silly moon hating water. Mm. But yeah, I didn't realise how little water shift there really was of the tides without that kind of tidal resonance. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I've learned a lot about tides today. And I think that's probably the information that will stick with me, even though I just gave a shitty definition. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think probably the thing that will stick with me the most is that trees do stuff with tides. Yeah. 
That's, that's very just cool. Really fucking cool. Yeah, and hopefully that fact about the Bay of Fundy because that's a pretty cool one. Yes, I could, do, I could do with trying that out. I want to go there now. Yeah, absolutely. I bet that's really handy in a pub quiz as well. Actually, I feel like that's good to mm. know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, Rick Kelly and the Dean, actually, my my other little bit I liked was not science based. I just thought this was fucking stone cold. This is after you were saying earlier that the Dean was being um, a dick, dragging the joke being out. A dick, yeah, dragging not a very funny joke out for ages. And I just loved the snapping, the very calm snapping moment from a bombastic man. It was uh, Dean, said Rick Kelly. Yes, our Chancellor. I would just like to point out, Dean, that it was not a very funny joke to begin with. It was a pathetic attempt, Dean, at dragging a sad laugh out of a simple figure of speech. Only four-year-olds and people with a serious humour deficiency keep on and on about it. I just wanted to bring this out into the open, Dean, calmly and in a spirit of reconciliation, for your own good, in the hope that you may be made well. We are all here for you, although I can't imagine what you were here for. Wow! <laughs> incredible for me that's a good, good that was fucking cold yeah. I like that and I love that like the, the next line or something is said, like the, said the dean yeah. and that kind of yeah yeah he's properly cowed but like in a way that he'll bounce back it's fine this kind of like <laughs> devastating attack must happen once or twice a day I think oh absolutely yeah <laughs> cool do you um, want to actually... uh, cap off the little bits with another little science bit perhaps yeah, this is fun because this is speaking of people arguing. Uh, the mm. Biosphere 2. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so I hadn't heard of this before the book. You've had because you listened to the Omnibus episode on it. Yeah, I'll link to that. It's really cool. Yeah. So the book provides, like, obviously a decent amount of context. This was um, the building that struggled with oxygen levels. Mm-hmm. despite the fact they'd calculated it to be totally self-staining, they had to put oxygen in, and that was because exposed concrete was absorbing carbon dioxide because it hadn't occurred to the ecologists that that would happen because they didn't know that concrete cures for 10 years after it's laid. Which is why you want some just random fucking specialists around all yeah. experiments, I think. That's what I was saying the other day with the AI and like very niche linguists. I feel like you just need some really esoteric knowledge geeks around everything confusing. Absolutely. So the original Biosphere 2 mission, basically the aim was to research a totally self-sustaining closed ecological system. And the idea was thinking about if this could practically be used in the future for like colonization of planets and such. And obviously they had to start pumping oxygen in, so they swiftly found, as it was, not quite. But that doesn't mean it was a complete waste of time. Yeah. Um, So the original mission ran from 1991 to 1993. And the whole idea was once the people went in, it was closed until the mission was over. Right. Any amount of opening it up to bring anything in would count as a a failure of the research being done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the oxygen thing was already kind of dicey. I won't go into all of the drama around it because there was a lot of dramas to do with the funding, the PR for the mission, public response to it. But the biggest drama was there were only eight people on this mission. So eight people locked in this biome and they had a huge mix of biomes. They hadn't... And it's my fault I keep thinking of fucking Valheim when I'm saying <laughs> had all these biomes. But they had a, basically a functioning rainforest. They had an ocean with actual coral reefs. They had multiple species in there. The thing was huge. They had a full agricultural setup because obviously they had to be entirely self-sustaining. Yeah. Um, the diets designed for them were very nutrient-dense but quite low in calorie because there was only so much food they could su- sustainably produce themselves. They were only eight people. right? And they okay. were doing a lot of research work as well. 
And that was one of the factors that led to the eight people on the mission splitting into two factions. Oh, and basically completely at war with each other. They still worked as a team for the sake of the mission to keep everything running, mm. like, I guess, as a survival thing. But otherwise, the two factions completely refused to speak to or communicate with each other. And these were people who were friends who had worked together for years. And they became like sworn lifelong enemies. Were they just hungry? <laughs> that was a big part of it. So Jane Pointer, who was one of the people who was on this mission, she now runs like a luxury space travel thing. Oh, um, I went down so many fucking Wikipedia rabbit holes today. Oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to re-listen to this episode after this because I've forgotten all of this. Yeah, I'm going over this very quickly as well. I'm assuming the Omnibus episode goes into a lot more interesting detail. I think so. The faction split was kind of based on the nature of the research. Should mm -hmm. it be specifically focused on the system itself, in which case keeping it totally closed off was essential? Or if it was more generalised into looking at what research they could do with what they had within this terrarium, but then risking the level of closure. So some factions wanted to risk the level of closure for the sake of being able to do more research and possibly having a better quality of life in there. I take it because well, it was just so expensive. It was like a, whatever the aim is, we need to get it right this time. Yeah, yeah very much so. Um, the morale was really low because like I said, they were literally living with reduced oxygen. This is the equivalent to living like in the highest peaks of the Andes for quite a long time. Oh, Okay. So if you can imagine how that would affect your mental health, they were also on a restricted... Constant brain fog kind of thing. Exactly. They yeah. were also obviously on these restricted diets because they were trying to live completely self-sustain. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of research into this stuff. Isolated human groups, it's most often studied in Antarctic research stations mm. because there are small groups living in isolation for very long periods of time. So what was noticeable about the Biosphere 2 mission... I chess in those anymore. Yeah, there's some weird stuff yeah. that they've... Because like someone got shot. <laughs> yeah, this is, so this is an interesting thing. In a lot of those, like especially those Antarctic research and similar isolated situations, it can often turn violent and sabotage can happen. But that oh. didn't happen in this. Like I said, everything oh, can, they kept everything going pretty much as it was meant to go for the sake of the research, for the sake of the mission, even as they couldn't agree on it. They just good also scientists. refused to speak to each other and hated each other. Oh, good scientists, not good people, maybe. No, I'm sure they were good people. I would be so fucking cranky. But yeah, I'm very glad to know there's an omnibus episode because I'm going to go and read and learn a lot more about yeah. this because I am so fascinated by isolated I, human behaviour. Yay, we but, haven't had a joint obsession for a couple of weeks. since. <laughs> at one point, the crew actually started eating the seed stocks that had been brought in for agricultural oh, no. purposes. Oh, and they shouldn't have been doing that because that was food that hadn't been grown within the biosphere. So Jane Pointer, who was one of the people on the mission, told the PR director she'd been doing this and so had others and was told she had to leave and just decided not to, just stayed. Yeah, what are you going to do? Drag me out? That's yeah, that's good the thing. PR director. Not even it would look bad from a PR thing, it would have ended the project. They couldn't oh. open the project to forcibly remove her without ending the project because the whole point was that it stayed, stayed sealed off and closed. Oh, so she'd have to go through like a decompression chamber or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and they didn't have something like that. So it was yeah. literally like, while uh, she wanted to stay there, they couldn't force her to leave until the project ended. Love it. And then there was a whole separate dr drama to do with how it was being funded. Um, but this episode's getting quite long. Is it? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <Well> cool. <laughs> Let's talk about the bigger stuff. So I uh, this was kind of like near the end of the section and in the introduction, actually. So nicely topped and tailed. The idea of sci-fi influencing science is something I've liked before. And I think we talked about it in Strata, maybe, or Dark Side mm -hmm. of the Moon, something like that. Probably Strata. 
And so I did another little tangent, probably similar to the one I did last time, but in a slightly different direction, just having a look at what has affected what over time. There's some of the obvious ones that I know we've mentioned before, like William Gibson coming up with the term cyberspace metaverse, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. The word robot coming from that play, Are You Are? Yeah. Although, interestingly, I didn't know much about this play. Um, It's based on like meat automatons, like they're they're biological matter. They look like humans. Oh, right. Uh, They're not androids. Yeah. There's Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Mm-hmm. And he was the like pioneer of this theory that technology is going to end up ruling our lives, that the fast-paced progression of technology is what's going to uh, consume all of our time and energy at some point as, as we maintain it. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that he was writing this and writing it about things like the wristwatch. Oh. Um, so this is quite a while ago. And it sounds almost amusing with the kind of time frame it's in. But of course, it was the start of this exponential growth of technology. So around yeah. that time. So that was pretty prescient. Things that were mentioned in this book, things like geostationary orbit, uh, space elevators, mm-hmm. uh, Clark, you know. <laughs> Clark. That guy. And more solidly, though, I didn't realize how much sci-fi had directly influenced the people who were most involved in um, rocket travel. Oh, really? Um, yeah, spaceflight. So Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon mm-hmm. um, inspired, directly inspired, uh, Konstantin, oh crap, uh, Sielkovsky? Sielkovsky? Sure. Yeah, that sounds right, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Herman Oberth, uh, two of the very important um Pioneers uh, of actual space travel. Yeah. So the the shit. <laughs> I've forgotten the name for it. With the the rocket fuel that then powers the next bit, then powers the next bit. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I can't. Uh, I, I don't know the name for it. Yeah. There's a really good uh, New York Times piece about this in particular, uh, which I'm going to link to. And I've got a s- subscription, so I think I should be able to like link it as a gift. And then, like, oh, cool. so if you're listening to this in the two weeks after this episode has come out, you should be able to read it for free. But otherwise, um, I don't know, just email me. <laughs> I'll find it for you. It's fine. Oberth, anyway, mm-hmm. also worked on a film with Fritz Lang as kind of um, a consultant yeah, on like whether a- he was getting stuff about space travel, right? So Fritz Lang's ago did Metropolis, which is like the economy. Yeah. Um, this film was called Woman in the Moon. And the rocket that Oberth built, Mm-hmm. Um, although it didn't work and in fact exploded and perforated his eardrum and like nearly blinded him in one eye. Um, and he like left in embarrassment, not disgrace, like no one made him, but he was so embarrassed he left. But even so, that prototype was the real like starting basis um, of Saturn V. So there is like a direct link there from this sci-fi film to the first lo- lunar expedition. And then, and then... Robert Goddard, directly inspired by The War of the Worlds. Oh, of and course. Like, this isn't just speculation. Like, these are just sci-fi books that these people like. These people have said, like, reading this made me do this or that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. And the last thing is one of Jack's favorite facts. And it doesn't really fit, but it kind of does. And I love it. Um, so, <laughs> Serrano de Bergerac, um, you know, mm-hmm. the French poet, yeah, um, wrote a couple books that are like comic sci-fi kind of. Mm-hmm. So one of them was called uh, Comical History of the States and Empires of the Moon, but in French, um, which was published posthumously in 
57. Note that very early date. Um, and in it, Serrano travels to the moon using rockets powered by firecrackers, um, which may be the earliest description of a space flight um, powered by any kind of rockets. Amazing. Um, yeah. And obviously that was so far ahead of its time and so vaguely connected, it didn't directly inspire or affect anything. But it's very yeah. cool. And also um, in that book, he meets moon men on the moon and they have four legs. They have firearms that shoot game and cook it, which to me sounds very like laser gun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pew, pew, laser pew. Gun yeah, yeah. Um, and they also have talking earrings used to educate children. So I'm ah, kind of like that a Bluetooth headset. Coffee right there. So, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like that because it's um, somewhere in this. Oh, it was the last footnote in this section, wasn't it? Uh, is like asking what what sci-fi is, mm-hmm. and um, talks about the Evolution Man, which I did read on Pratchett's direct recommendation. I guess he must have mentioned it in one of his other books. Yeah, and yeah, this to me almost fits into that. That's not really sci-fi, but isn't it great? <laughs> Like the other side of that. It's not sci-fi, even though it has some of the trimmings. <laughs> but it's wonderful all the same. It's wearing a sci-fi hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and educational earrings. Is that Bluetooth headsets? Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, your 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 talking point is... Let's talk about narrative. Talk, talking about stories and such, yeah. I managed to shoehorn that into a science book. No, Project did that for me. Yes. Um, At length. So... <laughs> The prologue talks uh, early on about Discworld running on narrative imperative, which mm-hmm. uh, we all know is is a favourite theme of mine. It is. And we have this whole running thing through the book that Ponder is trying to understand how a universe works, not just without magic, but without narrativium. Mm-hmm. There's a narrative within the science aspect of the book, as well as the story within the Discworld side of the book. We start with the kind of the birth of science. Okay. Uh, and the transition of sort of philosophy into science by way of heresy. Oh. Uh, with a bit of natural philosophy. As a treat. As a little treat. <laughs> but yeah, just um, tr- challenging orthodoxy. But it's one of my favourite things I've talked about with Pratchett before, especially when it comes to talking about folklore and stories, is mm-hmm. that science began with people going, well, why are those lights up there? The simple questions. Yeah. That are the hardest, yeah. And then that leads into the bigger questions, like what the fuck is the mass of a planet and how does that create a nuclear fusion? Yeah, but to me, I, I think what Pratchett's saying there is that's the smaller question, isn't it? Exactly. That's what Why it, are the bright was... lights in the sky is the big question. Yeah. <laughs> and that starts getting broken down into yeah. smaller questions and smaller yeah, questions yeah. and smaller questions. So the little questionette the in the country. Yeah. Exactly. The little questionette in the exoplanet. <laughs> Not a rogue planet, though. No, Horrible no, place no, to darling. build. <laughs> And it goes back, it goes into this potentiality, this time before time. And we talked about this idea of, of time not even existing, mm-hmm. which is something I do kind of like as a concept mm. Concept we, we landed on. Mm. Um, it, of course, mentions the Tersals all the way down theory, which is something we've definitely talked about on the podcast before. Yeah, but I loved this explanation of it. Of right? finding something for the turtle to stand on. Yeah. I, I guess I'd appreciated it as a joke before, or as like a clever line but i really liked how they expanded on it in this i thought that was very cool yeah going into the actual idea of this infinite thing and you know is there such a thing as causality especially when it comes into the universe existing yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. like at some point it's all it's at some point the question and what's that standing on stops making sense 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like a five-year-old going, why, why, why? Until eventually the parent, or in this case, the universe just goes, because. <laughs> well, this is, you mentioned introducing the book, the whole lies to children thing, or Ponder's version of lies to wizards. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and this necessity of it, this idea to start with a lie because that helps you prepare your brain for more and more of the truth. Mm. And turtles all the way down is kind of a nice one of those lines of just, yeah, it's just turtles. It keeps being yeah. turtles, recursive turtles. Which, by the way, I must admit, the two lies to children mentioned have also stuck with me. The rainbow one and the atom being structured like a solar system are both very much still in my head as the, yeah, yeah. that's that's about it don't ask me to explain what they are but like that's what's in my head very much same and that's fine at some point i might learn how rainbows work properly but right now i can just go oh pretty colors in the sky makes me happy (laughs) what a shiny and i found it quite interesting actually that not long past the lies to children bit it talks about this idea of boundaries and drawing a line Mm. and it relates it to discussions of you know where does life begin and discussions around abortion mm-hmm. at what point the embryo counts as a person with legal rights and what have yeah. you very good gender take as well i noticed especially yes. for the 90s mm-hmm. well yeah but actually the simple thing might be drawing a line creating a binary and then as soon as you grow up a little bit mm-hmm. there's at least a dozen different combinations of sex chromosomes in humans beyond yeah. xx and xy Yep. <laughs> it's a big blurry spectrum, lads. Like, she says immediately yeah. using a gender term. Well, that's just... I didn't realise that Android was a gendered term, by the way, spinning back wildly to something we were talking about a second ago. Wait, Android's gendered? Apparently, and apparently, one can, if one wishes to be absolutely appalling, refer to a female-presented Android as a gynoid. Listeners, I implore that you do not but it is within the realm of linguistic possibility. Listeners, I'd like to just put a blanket ban on gynoid on the <laughs> podcast now. It's on our band words list. All right, cool, cool. I'll add it to the list. You can think it as much as you like. We're all for freedom of thought, but you do Actually, not have not freedom of speech on our podcast. <laughs> oh, good. Sorry. Fuck, what did I interrupt there? Uh, the, fuck, I don't know. My the next boundaries was... the, and the beginnings and the becomings came out of that, didn't it? Exactly, very much so. And if you think about how Pratchett shapes a story, there's very much this thing because there is, obviously there's an actual beginning you can point to with the Discworld, you have the colour of magic, but there's also a sense that the Discworld has just constantly continued to spin and fly through space. It doesn't need yeah. a boundary, a beginning or an end. And, and much in the same way that it's not always the right thing for us to assume that the, the way the universe worked a long time ago is the way it worked now. Um, on the disc world, some things didn't work the same way as they do now because either the time monks did something fucky or brackets, a wizard did it. Yeah. Uh, or just because Pratchett changed his mind and that's fine too. It's his world. Yeah, he can do what he likes a But the, the disc world uh, is becoming... It's becoming. Oh, that's nice too. That's a way of. Isn't it becoming? Interesting phrase, isn't it? Actually, what becoming? Becoming is like attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, we're not doing etymology live on the podcast, Francine. You're fine. (laughs) Um, You're getting a real insight into how our conversations work. This episode, listeners, we're a little bit lost without the usual narrative structure. uh, Relevantly enough to this. Point. Okay, yeah. So, so speaking of narrative, you have the book constantly going back into the way humans on Round World still do use narrativium, even if it's not officially a present element. Yes. 
um, and Ponder's whole crisis that a narrativeless universe is meaningless. Mm. But it's the thing humans have always done. We understand by keeping things simple, by telling lies to children, by telling ourselves stories such as the yeah. solar system shaped atom and the pretty colours make the lights in the rainbow. Metaphor. And then almost. And what this becomes with humans telling themselves stories to deal with things they don't understand is this idea that Pratchett brings up or the book brings up of privatives. Mm-hmm. Um and so on the disc world, dark is a literal thing. It is the opposite of light is also a tangible concept. Yeah. And we love this. We're always going on about this. <laughs> we are a big fan of li- how light works on the disc world, the yeah. tangible dark. And just pri- privatives in general. Love that word, by the way. Didn't know it before. No. I'm very into the fact we now have a word for what we've been kind of vaguely ranting about for two years now, three years now. Fuck. A thing that's just actually the absence of another thing, the, sub- yeah. the drunk sobriety nerd yeah. relationship. <laughs> Um, and this is something humans do. They think narratively, so they create mm. primitives. They create names for things that are actually just the absence of things. So we name darkness as if it's a thing as opposed to just the absence of light. And this leads into reifying, um, creating, constructing something real based on what's actually more of an yeah. absence. And using death as an example is really fascinating. Because yeah, it's, it's taking this abstract, making it into the solid. Yes, into its own physical state. And then because it is a state, it must therefore have these other implications such as the the soul and what have you. Yes, yeah. And obviously, believe what you want about souls. We won't go into the deep religious discussion on the podcast because... Because death doesn't have time. He's got so many to reap. Exactly. He doesn't have time for you to worry about whether you've got a soul or not. It's coming with him. (laughs) So we reify things in the round world all the time. We create narratives uh, to explain processes, Mm -hmm. to put a label on something intangible as if we could then hold it in our hands. Is it anthropomorphizing something? Yeah, is a type of reifying then, I guess. Effectively, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, Putting something into like this kind of human form that we feel like we could then interact with, which is what you have with really early like... um, multi-deity systems and that's not the word for it there's a proper word for it like uh pantheons Mm -hmm. and so those gods come to represent certain things Mm -hmm. and that's another way of putting a tangible thing on it having aphrodite who's a goddess of love Mm -hmm. and actually that kind of continued into like western christian culture with saints and patron saints for different things i mean there's a patron saint for fucking everything yeah um and that's like the modern version of of the pantheon that was a sidetrack but there's this idea of reifying, of, of putting words on things to make them more tangible, of course. On round world allows for conversation. Mm-hmm. You need to have language to discuss something, even if that something is the absence of something, even if it's a privative like death, like yeah. darkness. But then, of course, solid things are sometimes built on those conversations. Exactly. But in the disc world, uh-huh. if you start reifying things, they're going to fucking manifest at you. And get and really annoyed how- if you build on top of them. Don't build on the tooth fairy. She will deck you. (laughs) (laughs) Haha, deck. Anyway, which brings me to the fact that once again, we have got back to my favourite Pratchett theme, power of belief. Yay, we did it. (laughs) Got there. (laughs) Despite my best efforts to derail us as always, we have, as always, ended up where we wanted to be. Have you got an obscure reference, Finial, for me, Francine? Yeah. It's not the one I wrote down. Uh, it's a different <laughs> one. Um, <laughs> because that's just the kind of episode it is. Uh, bollocks for a second. 
something scraping right outside my window and I'm not going to check what it is because it might be a drunk. Uh, <laughs> right. When worlds collide, young man, someone is doing something wrong. It was the voice of the senior wrangler. It sounded more petulant than usual. So this is when all the students are chucking planets at the other planets and such, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, when worlds collide is, of course, uh, 1933 sci-fi novel. Ah. Which, uh, Joanna, you'll be thrilled to know, is based upon rogue planets. All is the it? Plot, plot centres around them, yes. Uh, rogue planets in particular, which threaten the existence of our planet. In fact, not only threaten it, but uh, are about to destroy it. Are they um, looming? And I'm actually not going to spoil it, even though it's from 1933, because it's a, quite a good story and has a sequel and everything. But um, When Wells Collide, that's what it is. It also spawned a film of the same name, which uh, listeners might be more familiar with. Um, and yep, yeah, that's my obscure reference, which is thankfully quite short for a sci- science-heavy book. <laughs> I I had to track down a literature reference because all the science stuff was explained. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Right. I think that's everything that we are going to say about the science of Discworld. We've saved you at least eight more tangents. We will be back for the second half of the book from chapter 25 onwards. I'm sure I did say that we are using a slightly more modern edition that I believe has some chapters added. Uh, The 2002, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm reading, yeah. So going from chapter 25, Unnatural Selection, through to chapter 49, if you have a different number of chapters, I'm sorry, it might get a bit weird. Yep. But even so, uh, I think the depths we're going into, you can enjoy you the can episodes just along. the same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so until next time, dear listeners, you can follow us on Instagram at The True Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at The True Shall Make You Fret. Join our subreddit community, r slash T-T-S-M-Y-F. Email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and quasars, the true shall make you fret pod at gmail.com. If you would like to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the true shall make you fret, where you can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. And of course, please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, all that nonsense where you find us, because it helps other people find us. Mm-hmm. Which can be difficult in such a large and uncaring universe. Yeah, somehow you've got Especially as here. we keep camping on those fucking exoplanets. <laughs> and until next time, dear listener. Don't let us detain you. I think that's as smooth as we've done the outro in a year. <sighs> yes, I've just realised if I don't want to say it, I just need to point at you. Mm.